Hey everybody, welcome back to another all new X's for Show. I'm Nico, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N I C O A C T I O N. And I'm TK. You can find me on the socials at XNateXGrayX. And we are super excited for today's episode. This is going to be so much X Men. And, you know, that's what this show started as. We began as an X Men podcast. We will die as an X Men podcast. And all the stuff in between is just full of X goodies. And I think I'm particularly excited about today because it has been a minute since we've had a real AU experience in the X-Men world. Um, you know, the last thing that really comes to mind with some minor diversions is uh, Age of X-Men. And... I think I was not super excited to talk about this coming up to it, but as we were planning out the schedule and as I was looking at the first four issues of Sins of, Sins of Sinister and year 10 as this block of three of, you know, Storm in the Brotherhood, Immoral X-Men, and Nightcrawlers, the number ones for this are year, year 10. So it's been 10 years of the alternate universe that we're in right now. And as I was starting to kind of put it all together and think about it, I got really excited because Sins of Sinister is really doing different stuff with the idea of the AU crossover event compared to what we have seen in the past. And we talked about that a little bit in our coverage of, all, you know, all the previous X-Men AUs. But this one to me is particularly exciting, I think. I kind of am maybe on the other side of it. I'm kind of like, I'm here for it because I'm collecting it because we're covering it because it's a show that we do. But I just had so much Kieran Gillen with Judgment Day, which I enjoyed plenty. But I'm, I'm maybe a little bit good on this. Is it real? Is it not real? Is this the real life? Is it just fantasy? You know, I'm, I'm caught in a landslide of crossovers. And, and there is no escape. Well, and you know, I do love though the power of 10 things that this kind of parallels Powers of Ten and House yeah. of X. There's a really a beautiful symmetry to that. I really like the dynamic balance that it creates, knowing that there's at least an attempt to tie back to something. I had been really nervous because it feels in some ways like we have leapt forward so much in this narrative that I, I just worry sometimes about the longevity of the project, but... This idea of tying it back to the origin to find new stories, that's exciting. I agree. And I am, my one really big reservation was exactly the same one that you have. Um, I I hate to name a creator, uh, but a little bit of Gillen fatigue. Not because there's anything wrong with what Gillen does. Um, you know, you and I spent hours upon hours covering Spider-Girl, a character who we fell in love with, a project, the MC2, that we were so impressed with the creators for doing. But one thing that we said is, you know, unfortunately this just wound up being too much Tom DeFalco at a certain point. And because there were so few artists involved, it was too much Pat Olive, it was too much Ron Lim, and there was they were always in blocks. There was not a lot of interchanging. So we didn't even get breaks at the time. And it really, we think so romantically about the Claremontian run 
that goes for 17 years and is this grand vision that a creator gets to execute with, for lack of, you know, other terms, full control and, you know, an editorial team that doesn't change that much, that they all work close together and they, you know, they shepherd this beautiful, long-standing narrative. And one guy did that and we all love it because it's our childhood and it's how these stories came to be, but there are uh, pokeable holes in that whole thing. And I do think that, you know, when I reflect on somebody like Gillen, who has such star status, who is doing a blockbuster immediately after a blockbuster, as though we can't possibly get enough Gillen, it's, it is one of my big concerns as I go through this. And one of the biggest things I noticed is that the art team on these books are so similar as well. So just to put up that we're uh, talking about today, we're going to be taking a look at Sins of Sinister, the kickoff issue that started the whole event. I know we've already looked at it, but always worth looking at the first issue of a big event. We're also going to be taking a look at the year 10 books in Storm and the Brotherhood of Mutants 1, Nightcrawlers 1, and Immoral X-Men 1. And each one of these features art by Paco Medina, and they're this huge narrative running story. And it is definitely a thing where I feel like the books are trying to tell a really coherent, clear narrative. It all starts with the original titles that these are based out of, but it ultimately winds up moving to some places that I do think get a little cloying because they feel so like insularly protected but we're going to get into all of that and i can't wait to we're also going to be taking a look at rogan gambit number one as well as captain Britain betsy braddock number one now it's so exciting to talk about these dynamic issues that see some really exciting romance kind of stuff but also way more than just romance stuff like no one is downplaying these two incredible books written by women that are featuring you know, female leads, certainly not knocking it to say romantic titles, but seeing Rogue and Gambit on the cover, that's a couple. Seeing both Betsy and Ascani on the cover, that's a couple. And while I super love the couple dumbs, I I wonder what that's about, like in a good way, because Age of Apocalypse had going for it that everything else shut the heck down for all of Get Out until Age of Apocalypse was all kinds of done. Here, so many other books are still running that I'm kind of like, oh. It is, it is the weird thing. I'm sort of waiting for Marvel to take the big swing, the big risk of something like, you know, shutting all the books down and having a hard reset on a lot of stuff. And um, I don't necessarily, I'm not going to take too many points off for the fact that didn't happen here. But it is a little, it, you really are in a different headspace in the Sins of Sinister books each week than when you go over and read a current continuity, not quite sure, is this before or after. Um, but at the same time, it is really nice to be pretty uh, unashamedly, unabashedly exploring romance in titles, in making that a... a really spotlight feature with some real nuance to it and not doing just kind of petty soap opera sexy storylines which i think we get a lot of and not getting um 
you know, really wink, wink, nudge, nudge, are they a thruple or aren't they storylines, but boldfacedly, this is the marriage of Rogan Gambit, boldfacedly, this is what happened after that epic kiss between Betsy and Rachel. I think it's so important to do that. I don't think we do enough of it. So seeing it here in two titles, love that it's women writing them. Um, it's it's a special time. I do wonder though what the idea is with Rogan Gambit again. I don't want to speak for all of fandom, but I am kind of gambited out. Gumbo man, love you, but go nap. And I love Rogue, but I love Rogue free of Gambit more than I love Rogue. And I think it's so interesting because, like, whenever anybody's like, Betsy, queer, I'm like, well, hold on. You're telling me the character who spent many a year fused with another character against her will, whose psyche was permanently enmeshed with this other woman's, you're telling me that she can't have grown and changed and explored herself and found new places in herself. I don't know. I think one of the things that's crazy about Captain Britain, number one, and we're going to get to it, is her being queer is not even a question for me. It's sort of like the other stuff about the book where I'm like... <laughs> yeah, um, I, I I completely... That's great. I That's one of those things, you know, I'm not going to ever debate a flat earther. Uh, I'm not going to debate anybody who has questions about Betsy being queer. That's just fine. That's happening. Uh, I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about... You know, does the relationship work? And then does the book that the relationship is in work? And yeah, I mean, I think we have questions there. I think with Rogan Gambit, um, this is forever. I think this is uh, one of few, like, this is uh, a, a Gwen Stacy's death couple. This is never going to change. Um, and th it's really like a let go and let God moment for me. No, that Magneto and Rogue or nothing. You know, I kind of, uh, except for the fact that, you know, the OTP for Magneto is, of course, Charles. Um, I do love that couple. It's it's weird and gross, though, because they are a hundred years apart in age. A hundred years apart, but just moments away in soul. Why would you hate on love? You're saying what's in my heart, but my, my mind has to look out for the children and not let them see this example. And, well... And I definitely agree with Jacob uh, down here, Jake, our amazing contributor. Gambit and Rogue are a read and sue. They'll never fully break them up. Well, and I think that part of that, though, is like when you think about uh, their relationship, their family is so effing entwined in this relationship. It is so funny. I'm a poly person, and I've, had, I've been so lucky that all of my mother-in-laws and my own mother as well uh, have all been delightful. Uh, and you have not met one of them yet. Uh, that is true. And, but uh, you but, might very soon. Well, and so, but, you know, the, the rest of them uh, have all <laughs> been really warm people. So when Destiny's like, hi, guys, I'm just going to skulk in your bedroom. <sighs> that is like some threes company levels of shenanigans. And it is nothing I am here for. Oh man, we'll get into this more for sure. I'm glad you said that because this is like a this is being bookmarked for me because I can't wait until we've got Robbie and Tori and Jonah in the room to get into this as well. I'm sure Jonah has some very relevant mother-in-law opinions, um, but well, I think before, it's yeah. it's gonna lead. It has already led to some fun comedy 
the hate you panel of destiny is an all-time favorite um and i just i see potential but there is another side to it for sure and to start things off we're taking a look at this guy sins of sinister oh yeah and just to do a little bit of like super gay history for a second um so you guys might remember uh classic cartoons there was a, a bad guy simon bar sinister and um a bar sinister was how families were like, you're a bastard. You're not really our kid. You can fly our flag, but you have to put a black bar on the left side or the sinister side. Because like dexterous and sinister left and right, you know, the ambidextrous can use both sides. Right. So a bar sinister is literally a, a black bar on the left side of your flag indicating that you're technically a bastard. And... Um, I, yeah, geek, totally geek. I, I, you think Karen Gillan isn't a geek? I mean, the guy literally has uh, comic books about dice games. So uh, <laughs> I just had to, you know, be your uh, friendly neighborhood gay gym teacher librarian for a minute and uh, needed to download a little bit of knowledge about bar sinisters. Um, and I think it's really interesting because if a bar sinister represents that you are actually the bastard child of a nation, I can't think of anybody that better represents that right now than sinister. Sinister is the bastard child that Krakoa allowed to germinate, you know, like when you think about, you know, classic, you know, sort of like that evil kid things, it's just kind of like horror movies. And it's like the good son, it's the omen, it's, um, it's that of, uh, you know, Megan kind of almost, not really. Um, but at the end of the day, Sinister is a giant evil child. And that's why he's playing these games, and that's why he's getting his way. And, you know, originally his origin was that he was a giant evil child. He was the yeah. psychic manifestation of a child. He was the evil psychic manifestation of a child. I mean, I, I think you are totally right, and he is the bastard. He represents what we want to do with our greatest hopes and how we fail with our greatest weaknesses. And, you know that Charles, Moira, and Magneto could not create Krakoa without him, but that they could not create Krakoa without him is so important. And it's one of those things that I'm not looking for this crossover to solve that. I am looking to have one big conversation that is left open-ended, and I'm hoping that's what we're getting towards. Well, I cannot imagine having this conversation without the voices of the X-Pac who are here to weigh in on an AU, well, like so many others, actually. And so we're kicking things off by bringing in the X-Pac's very own Jake. So uh, our producer extraordinaire, Kevo, is always running the board and making these things happen seamlessly. So thank you, as always, Kevo, for uh, just being the absolute best. Thank you, Kevo. And, uh, Jake, tell us where you're from. What's your name? What's your sign is? Your perfect date. Um, I like long walks on the beaches and quiet dinners where we don't talk at all over soup and tea. Um, That's very original. It's very, very original. <laughs> and a lie. The dream of getting you through a whole dinner without talking. Oh, you know me too well, TK. Hello, I'm Jake Crawler for this episode because uh, we're going to talk about a whole bunch of Nightcrawlers and I'm excited about it. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Omega Sentinel, as in Omega Sentinel, um, and on Instagram at The Heart Farmer. Um, I'm not going to do one for that, so okay. Um, 
and boy, boy, howdy, am I excited for this event. Um, but I really, I really got to push back on this notion that this is even an AU, you guys, because I don't think it is. I think that this is, I, because, I see that look, I see that look. Moira's resets are considered sub-universes sub of the 616. They are not alternate universes, and this is one big Moira reset. So do you hold on? But do you genuinely believe that that mechanic is going to result in something different happening yes. here? You do. Yes, I, 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 I think that that is the the Chekhov's gun of this whole thing. It's what they're driving towards. You know, it's the MacGuffin they're chasing. Everyone's like, "Where's this fucking lab? Oh, this friggin' lab! Oh, this, this stupid lab!" Sorry. Um, we're all trying. and we're trying, and. You know, and and given the structure of this story, I really like that this is, um, and and I think this is a controversial thing. I like that this is more of an X of Swords style serial storytelling event, where you kind of to get the full story, there is kind of an order to read these books in. You know, there was a point at which the lab disappears and winds up in Orbis Stellaris in one book and then in another. Um, so there there is a pretty clear sequence here, and that helps my scatterbrain keep this this whole story in order. Um, I like that I don't have to go looking in like twelve thousand different books to get the full story. I like that there aren't like eight different smaller books spinning off of this. Um, I think it's a different kind of event, and in 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 some ways it's similar to Age of X Men too, because it's kind of splitting the X Men universe down the center and saying you guys go off and do this alternate thing, and you guys are still going to be anchored in the main universe doing other things, a la Captain Britain and Rogue Gambit. Um, so. I want to jump in because that's at the right point. Like that's like that's exactly my point of of interest. We're yeah. told that Age of Apocalypse is not an alternate universe, but it's a rewrite of our universe. We're literally Age of Apocalypse. That's, yeah, that's what it is. That's the Mkron crystal. It literally changes time, and it's a perfect write over of our world, which is why there's no other world to go back to, but a moment to stop from fracturing the timeline, because the timeline fracture isn't a parallel world, but it's our world perverted. And that's the pitch of Age of Apocalypse. But it winds up its own world. And I so think I have I have here. I have like realmatic thoughts about that because I think as soon as you as soon as one world turns into another, that second one just becomes an alternate universe. Like or it's already the there or it's like universe. resonating into that alternate universe. Like that alternate universe already exists because multiverse, we've established that's the multiverse thing. So for me it doesn't like whatever the the narrative is trying to tell me about um so i guess i guess in some ways technically yes it is an au i just am being pedantic about the sequence by which uh we categorize au's but it's an au with an asterisk so no one's here yes, to give thank you a hard time. it's like a, it's, it's like a moira it's like a moira like kappa au you i'm know? not here to give a hard time but i also i am waiting for the moment because we've had these are au's We've had, we swear these aren't AUs. He he, we mm -hmm. were just kidding. They function exactly the same as AUs. And I'm waiting for the moment where we get that looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, but then functionally for plot hey. purposes. Hey, guys, dead means dead. <laughs> you know, I, I, I also really like the kind of event symmetry because this is paralleling last year's uh, X Lives X Deaths of Wolverine, which was itself Ow. kind of a <laughs> thank you, Nico. <laughs> <laughs> itself kind of a reference point back to House and Powers of X Ten, um, yeah. and so I kind of like the storytelling symmetry. It feels like this is this is the thing that this is the thing that's opening the next chapter, the the come uh, upcoming Fall of X. Um, so I, I guess. 
you know, I'm I'm really I'm really pleased with the progression of Krokoan events. It hasn't been boring. No, and if this leads into Fall of X, I'm happy. Um, I just need Fall of X to deliver on a promise because nobody wants to go to the movies and the best part be the popcorn. And if this is what's coming before Fall of X, I need this. I, I don't know. They, like I, I hear it, but like I'm. I'll say this: Kieran Gillen plays with other people's toys with more mm-hmm. affection than anybody in the universe. Kieran Gillen just loves your toys and wants to love on them and show you affection. Like what? A, like I would dream of Kieran Gillen taking my plans, throwing them in the garbage, and doing his own things with my ideas because <laughs> the the love he shows for other creators like i don't know if this was always the plan that sinister's dna was secretly being seeded into Mm -hmm. everybody you know while we're at it real quick creative teams kevin if you would bring up those amazing slides that you made uh i want to just remind everybody that we're here to discuss four incredible books we're going to be taking a look at sins of sinister number one storm of the brotherhood of mutants number one nightcrawlers number one and immoral x-men number one now, Sins of Sinister is, of course, written by Kieran Gillen with an unbelievable team of artists, but one guy to color them all. So, <laughs> Brian Valenza, dude, you you own so King much. shit. Uh, Clayton Cowles on Mastery. lettering with Lucas Vernick, Jeff Shaw, Marco Cicchetto, Jose, sorry, Juan Jose Rip, David Valdon, Travel Foreman, who it took me forever to get his name as a pun, uh, Carlos Gomez, Federico Vincentini, David Lopez, Joshua Casara, and Stefano Caselli. Of course this kicks off year 10 the trade will be available i believe it's the hardcover originally will be available september 19th 2023 moving on to our next title we have the a colors work is never done my amazing colors husband al ewing continuing his x-men red narrative in storm in the brotherhood with art by paco medina j david ramos letters by ariana mar with the trade once again available in september our third title is going to be nightcrawlers continuing the story of Legion of X by Cy Spurrier. Again, art by Paco Medina and J. David Ramos, with letters by Clayton Cowles, who is just total king of his game. And lastly, the issue that I'm going to just say it now lost me completely. The Moral X Men number one. Damn, Dylan, Paco Medina, Walden Wong, Victor Alabaza, J. David Ramos, Chris Sotomayor, Clayton Cowles, and I just didn't get this issue. I just didn't, I don't think it was bad, but like, um, I remember being like 11 and like watching fried green tomatoes on WPIX Saturday afternoon at 4 PM and being like, why is this a movie people are talking about in like social commentary? I don't get it. Then as an adult, I went back and rewatched it and was like, I get how this was a thing for people at the time. And I'm sure that like, I can already hear like everybody on the team, like from Arturo to, to Raven, everybody being like, some of these opinions, Nico. I can. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready, guys, because everybody's opinion matters. If Sinister has taught us anything, it's as long as you are at least a little bit sinister, you kind of matter. And I would and say everyone's you know, a little bit sinister now these days. The constant reminder is exactly what Nico said. Like it's not bad. We are, <laughs> we are so rarely trying to say like this person did bad work. There's just stuff that we as individuals don't connect to. Um, and it's actually, it's legit more fun that way because, you know, uh, th- these are the two people with whom I talk about comic books the most. Uh, but just for logistical reasons, that has not really happened that much this week. So, like, it's actually kind of exciting. I did not know that you didn't like Immoral. 
Uh, and that's actually kind of exciting to hear because it means like I, I, I want to talk about that with you. Similarly, I sort of thought Jake would really love Nightcrawlers, but we didn't talk about it. And Jake messaged me earlier today and said, I really love Nightcrawlers. And I, I was excited about that for different reasons. So, I mean, uh, like doing it real simple, what's been a favorite so far for both of you? Um, I, it, my answer is terrible. Yeah, no. <laughs> my favorite thing in the entire world was the page where Wanda died. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you have geez. a Wanda pillow. You're excused. I, it's allowed. I, you clearly love Wanda. I literally hug a Wanda, Wanda. pillow. Yeah. yeah. I yes. love Wanda. I mean, so it's much. it's an expedient way to get rid of a glaring problem in your in your and, and it also says something. Uh, yeah. You know it. If Wanda's dead, that's a huge... And I do... I really... Uh, I have to agree with you. Those one-page panels where all those artists' names that you listed come from because they each contributed mm -hmm. one of these... And they represent a crossover by page? How clever. They're mm -hmm. really something special. They do a bunch of work that, you know, a series like Age of Apocalypse did through many issues that maybe were too much. And sometimes it's okay to shorthand in iconography in something that says we cared enough to hire a different artist, but we didn't get so enmeshed in this that we are going to make you read four more issues. Well, and this is, um, this is what I like about this event over Judgment Day, yeah. that it's, really, <laughs> yeah. it's a lot more compressed. We're yeah. not reading 36 issues of this event. Right. And I like however many minis. Like this is... I love Sins of Sinister because it just compressed the whole X universe problem. We kept being like Judgment Day. How is this one day? Guys, it's literally called Judgment Day. <laughs> <laughs> it's Marvel time. But it, even with Marvel compression, I feel like that would have been like at least a week. It was so long. Yeah, that was... That was... That was... For Jack Bauer, that was a busy day. <laughs> um, Jake, I, I mean, I think I already said it, but... Well, I've, I want to I want to reel back a minute because if yeah. we're talking about like single panel moments, my favorite single panel moment will forever. I mean, maybe forever and ever be Emma Frost doming Sinister, which like, is why I was so shocked the neck, that Nico did not foot like on the head. Like I just, it's what he needs because he's a bad boy, and Mama Emma is there to Mummy Emma is there to fix him. Yeah, but like Dummy Mommy 101 really for Sinister, it was the it was like that was the Muppet babies of Dummy Mommy. You that gotta start like... somewhere and he he clearly is is a like he dresses the part, but he doesn't know what he's doing. Here's my sound. here's my I'm gonna balance you two out. <laughs> we so as I mentioned earlier, so much of what we Ready for Raven. Hold on. Raven, I know you're getting ready to come in. I just wanna let Raven know she's coming up. Please keep going. <laughs> So much of what we know about the character design having Dom elements to it comes from Claremont. But mm -hmm. again, it's those early references that things got said in notes and nothing ever happened. But we all learned them and came to expect like Celine, Emma, the members of the Hellfire Club. There is a BDSM element that we know to be a part. Yes, tribute. Tribute to mother, um, bad mother, but mother. Um, it's no, every like fan will say, like, especially queer fans will say, that was so important to me. The fact that I was seeing this, like, uh, you know, uh, 
culture that is tied to queer culture that you as a queer person learn a lot about that was in yeah. these books and that somebody cared and put it in there but it's never really paid off nobody is ever actually willing to do anything with it so while nico i do think that you are right about the 101 part it's kind of the 101 that we needed in 1989 and it's not great that we're getting it so many years later and for people who have been in this for so long it does feel like why <laughs> now but but come on it's, there's it's a payoff there's... we've needed I'm tagging in there's Raven. Something... Keep talking. Raven, come on in and start fighting. There's something ready. so much fun about seeing Emma dom a whole Ooh, bunch of... Uh, Emma's doing this. Ooh, a whole Emma's bunch of chimera this. cyclopses it's not because Emma. she can. It's a chimera. She <laughs> isn't your regular Emma. She's innocent okay? Emma. She's, she's got Emma, all the better parts. She's Emma with a whole big-ass scoop of sinister in there. Of course she's yeah. dommy mommy. Hello, yeah. it's sinister. He's up his own ass about this. Quite I mean, I think that's one of the things that we are going to have to reckon with after this is all said and done, which is that these are I, the fact that these characters are still in a lot of ways themselves yeah. is an important part of this. And, you know, I think that's a really curious one. I hope that a writer builds on this and is like, yeah, the part of Emma that wanted to grab a chain and choke a man, that's Emma. That's not the sinister part of Emma. Yes. Well, fully, I mean, part, part of that is sinister because sinister always wants to humble whoever else is in the room. That is just... That's <laughs> true. That's how that's he true. gets off. I mean, that's his thing. But I mean, here's the other thing. We know how he got his DNA into everybody. Mm -hmm. He <laughs> tainted the protocols. So, <laughs> like, every time they got brought back, there was a little extra in there and so it's it's not so much that we've completely lost a character it's that we have the character with a big scoop of sinister put in there as well with very few people being immune of any variety to it other than kurt who just mutated wildly and nobody understands why they can or cannot touch him which might have something to do with mother righteous which yeah it does appear to have to do with the magic there are dummy mommies all over this event <laughs> right. between mother righteous like queen rebel queen rebel storm uh mm -hmm. and 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 emma frost and her beautiful chain uh, and you know what it's, i'm gonna throw it out there in a very different way subtler it, but destiny okay but oh, also well, Charles. Well, and you know, Ms. Charles. Yeah. Well. Oh god. Charles, no, Charles, Charles Xavier? Is, oh my god. Charles Francis Charles. Xavier? Okay, oh highlight like the Francis to prove my whole point that he's so fat. <laughs> he's just a sub boy, though. Just, oh my god. Look, he is ready to tell like, you really? that he is really, really upset really at this T-Mobile really cellular. Really Charles, we're going to sit there and... Uh, uh, we wanted I better to, service. I have, to cry. I have empathy for them. No, you don't. <laughs> no, you don't, you weepy SOB. You are putting on so much of a smoke show for yourself it's not even funny at this exactly. point like i agree it's for himself he needs oh, to yeah. lie to himself oh yeah if he accepts and the even truth, more so as sinister okay charles exactly if he accepts the truth that he's okay with this it's lost. yeah oh yeah absolutely i mean even before sinister got in there he had no problem often violating consent or a person's will just either walking straight around it or going straight through it he mm -hmm. he and he mm -hmm. justified it all the time all the time if now i could summon just, any again, gift, has, it would yeah. be nine inch nails closer video right now it's yeah true. truly true. 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 and but i'm just, I'm um, just saying just like oh my god 
I, I, it's it's not an AU. I hate to say it. It's this is not an <laughs> Thank AU. You. Because okay, if it was an AU, it would literally restart with Moira's birth, and instead, right. Sinister has been able to manipulate it so it's only rewriting the last ten years in this in this loop or in this cycle. So yeah, it's not it's not an AU. It's more like at the very best, it's a pocket AU. Yeah. It's like so a novel like, series. It'll, it'll come back and somehow correct itself and reconnect. But mostly it's it just feels like, oh, it's, it's a rewrite, it's a rewrite, it's a rewrite. They just need to, you know, put the put the correction tape over it. I mean, <laughs> once they're done you. with the story and then, oh, I, I, here I we think, go, back to our regular. I think you're right. I think just for me, like, I really want that to have its own ramifications. Oh, yeah. Even if it's not at, right after this ends, like, mm -hmm. when they finally decide we cannot live without the Nightcrawlers, they need to show up in mainline <laughs> continuity. I don't want it to just be exiles where they go to Earth number, burr, 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 which is yeah. basically the same thing as the oh, Sinister actually, Sinister Time. Well, actually, Earth number burp, 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 burp is actually a Squadron Supreme world. So That is completely well, plausible. <laughs> well, I think they're, I think they're well, planting the, the seeds for this already. <laughs> oh, how so? Domino's name? Like Lucky Auntie? Lady or something like like Lucky Lady or something like that. Lady, I can't remember. It was Lady Luck maybe? Lady, uh, so which I could see her coming back because not only do you have a a teleportation bamf power that literally takes you to a different plane before Auntie it loops you back to where you're supposed to go. Auntie Fortune, thank you. Yeah. I was like, yeah, it's not yeah. Auntie Auntie. That's a different book, and she changed her name anyways. But, you know, I, who am I to say anything as I change my name on a regular basis? Anyways. <laughs> this is your right, Chimera right, Raven. Right, right. Well, that, and she's got luck. She's got Domino's luck powers. So she could take a lucky jump, hit a different plane, and then loop back into the, what we call the normal, you know, universe and be like, oh, what the shit is this? Oh, that'd be interesting. That'd, that'd be, be cool. a, That would be an awesome, like, side story to see different characters who are able to like somehow or another get pulled through who don't well, maybe necessarily affect the world too too heavily mm -hmm. but like still like that way you have remnants of this world coming back and through well and i think that's what's going to happen with rasputin because we have been mm. like gaga for her <laughs> since her first appearance mm. and she she got a little tease right at the end of immoral was it immoral or since i can't remember since the sinister immoral I, I, but I think sense. she's coming back, and I think that she's—I think she's coming into the main storyline. Now I, I know that I'm—I'm I'm soon to be, but on my way out. But I want to just say I think that the thing, the ramifications to look for, the thing to kind of track in the back of your mind is what is the Dominion, and what has been around that has always been around. That's that's going to be formed here. That's going to have ramifications back throughout the past of the Marvel universe and the future of the Marvel universe. Like, I think the Dominion has, has always been there and is staring us in the face, and we just don't recognize the shape of it yet. They tell us that it is atemporal. They yeah, yeah exactly. It yeah. If it achieves it, it has always achieved it. That's just, yeah. the, it's, that's, that's it. So, it's so yeah, what is, I mean, it's and I thought it was really interesting, too, that they brought the World Forge into it. Um, big Celestials, Eternals reference. Big MCU Eternals reference. Um, really? So, yeah, that's that's uh like where they that's um where they all come from. When um what's his name gives Cersei the tour when when 
remember? Uh, he's yeah, like, yeah, yeah, and this something. is the World Forge. So just okay. like terminology wise, like World Forge did not get brought up during um, Judgment Day. Like it's you know it is it it has canonical past, but we weren't talking about that the last time the Eternals came up. It is now a a thing that got name dropped in this as being like kind of the connective force that Orbis Solaris is using to get himself Dominion level. And mm -hmm. I just thought that was a very interesting thing to reference because it literally he could have just said, you know, I have a galactic Dyson sphere uh, mm -hmm. that I like stole off of some aliens and we all would have bought it. But to use specifically a celestial technology and name drop it um, is probably to me going to be pretty significant. Yep. Well, Jake, I, before you go, before we lose you, before we lose you to, to year 100, Oh gosh, is that gonna be the next time we see you? Oh, I'll be so old. You said nothing of Storm and the Brotherhood, and that's where I definitely want to get your opinion before you jettison on out. So, oh yeah, well, me. Rebel Queen Storm is—I mean, so first of all, oh, loving references to Star Wars. Oh, I love that screen crawl that they did. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah, that and, and like I and that I just I knew exactly what I was in for as soon as as soon as I saw it, I was like oh god thank you this is I'm such a I'm a Star Wars I'm a Star Wars nerd I'm an old school Star Wars nerd so this is this was very satisfying to me I love I love it's and it follows a very classic formula you got your band of rebels going in for an impossible task there's a there's a traitor there's a MacGuffin in the form of this this lab that is all over the place in this series so far or in this uh, this event so far. Um, I think it's I think it's a it's a really interesting key point in the development of this story, and I'm I'm gonna be really curious to see if Storm's gonna be alive at a hundred, because I would love to see old Storm kicking ass. I mean, yeah. I think I think we know we have her at a hundred. She's in the the wheelchair that she always gets put into in the future for some reason, which I think I like is that. the hey, weirdest thing. I like that. I, I it, also do come not. Come on, like it, it happens over time. 100 year old do you see sprinting around okay, come on fair but, but it's the fact that the she's wind. in this same chair as x-men the end and she's in it one other time no uh, it's, it's that chair it's the like well, christopher pike like maybe if, the, maybe if, you know, you know the, moira the dies a couple chair. more times we can get her a better chair <laughs> like this is a plan. this is a uh storm chair go fund me now <laughs> It's funny that the chair is a fixed point in time. You literally just can't change it. It's a constant. Well, oh no, poor Storm. Jake, I I also know that you said that you loved Nightcrawlers and you only yeah. just scantily touched it. So I'd well, love to get a little. Oh yeah, who's Mother your favorite Night? Who's your favorite? Uh, what are they called? What's their group name? Oh, like the oh, Night Riders or something. So I, I I can't look it up right now because I'm not talking about it, but I really I I like the idea that there's some essential piece of Nightcrawler that is that that can be that can that can push back this this sort of like je ne sais quoi that can be it's open to change and freedom. It is the spark. Yeah, thank you. It is the spark. I call it the je ne sais quoi because I'm not Nightcrawler. <laughs> if um, only they founded their religion around. You that. mean the je ne sais quoi? <laughs> just say Kurt. Oh, Nico. Um, I really love Mother Righteous. I think she is a fantastic character. I love the way she is subverting the the sinister system, um, or the Essex system, because they're not only one sinister, and she's an Essex. Oh, she's an Essex. Um, and I love that she's building a religion, and that I think is going to be the way she tries to assert dominion. Um, 
and honestly here for it i love her i love to see a queen i love to see a witch i love to see her gathering magical objects and being like we're gonna make a heart perilous and it's gonna be great um yeah i'm i'm obsessed with it i i just want to start making perilous organs yeah oh my gosh yes i'd like an eyeball perilous please just so i can see through all timelines just an eyeball with a pencil really close to it <laughs> um, i love that Jake, it has been such a pleasure having you. And please tell us again where we can all find your lovely countenance uh, until Thank we have for... the pleasure of your company again. Thank you for having me. Um, perilous. perilous. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at Omega Sentinel, OH Mega Sentinel, um, or on Instagram at uh, The Heart Farmer. That's who I am. Uh, thanks, everyone. This was a lot of fun. And until we return to discuss the prostate perilous with you, um, it has been amazing, and we will see you soon. My love. Hey, it's it's only the prostate perilous if you bear down. <laughs> also, I would like to point out that your doctor would point out that it's the prostate perilous if you don't get it checked out once a year. Um, so Raven, there is there is nowhere to ask. There is nothing to do but to ask you. So many storm storm in this goddess moment, where she is just the only person with a damn brain in all of the Marvel universe. I love her new outfit. I just wanted to say that straight up front. For once, I love the new outfit. It has this very Roman gladiatorial, like, strong feel to it. It actually covers the way it should. Yes. <laughs> I'm just saying. Like, it doesn't rely on showing off more of her body in order to get across how badass she freaking is. So I love that, and I love that she's... It's also a big shift because she's really shifted her position on this. It's 10 years after Arako. It's, you know, she's part of a, you know, the, the ruler of a broken land. She wants and needs not just vengeance, but to, like, start the healing process by taking away the thing that is hurting her people. So I'm just like, yes. But the fact that she fell for Mystique's bullshit not just once but twice? I, I, look, I think that that is one of the finest single issues I have read in a really long time. Yeah. But the line yeah. of dialogue that was, you fell for all the fake tells I've fed you over the yeah. years was a level of eye roll I'm not used to from an Al Ewing line of dialogue. I, I don't want to say like I felt betrayed by it, but <laughs> I did not like that line of dialogue in a meaningful no. way. Yeah, neither did I. Because here's the thing. For as sneaky as Mystique is, and I, I will absolutely grant that she is sneaky as shit. Rogue, or not Rogue, uh, Storm is a sneak thief. She was a pickpocket. Yeah. She's used to not just reading kind of the big tells that a person would have, a cadence, a voice, all that kind of stuff. She's used to picking up on very, very subtle changes, very, very subtle things. And she keeps her skill set very, very sharp on purpose. Oh, yeah. So, like, for her to go, okay, well, we caught you the first time because, you know, I got somebody here who's got, you know, that the master of metal blood. And, you know, I was, oh, I was checking your heart rate. Mm. Uh, okay. And then she gets stabbed from behind through the perilous spleen. And just, oh no, I'm dying on the floor over here. I fell for your thing. What? 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 And, 
Well, and that was like sort of even the the part that I found really interesting was that Al Ewing didn't shy away from these women's strengths and playing mm -hmm. into what made these women so powerful. And then there were just a couple of moments that were kind of like, kind of maybe clunk for me. Um, yeah. I don't know. I did think this was a great AU for women. I might not have loved Immoral X-Men, but between Storm as a powerhouse, running in the pages of Storm and the Brotherhood, and the general sense of strong women running through the pages of Nightcrawlers, which, yeah. okay, Nightcrawlers having the spirit of a Spider-Man book, ah. but right. the trappings of a Vertigo book, mm. yes. it reminded was... me a lot of Slingers, genuinely oh yeah the, nico yeah. that is the first thing that i thought as well and you know i the reason i was like these are these are the characters that are coming out of this like and i feel a little bit played because i feel like they were like uh yeah we're making an exiles team to see if you like it and if you do you're getting this exiles team which oh my god you're not wrong yeah you know which i'm fine with because i do in fact like this team Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, I, I feel like we are product testing a lot as readers these days for X stuff and it's fine. It's totally okay. But like you really did see them playing around with some stuff and the goal of tying Peter tightly to the X-Men, though he is not a mutant that he deals with a level of hatred for being who he is has always fascinated me. Uh, you know, I, I don't really, the thing, the biggest stretch for me is that Sinister would care that much about Spider-Man DNA or obtaining those powers. That seems super, on. super actually, low priority for him. Uh, no, actually, I have to bring up a, a thing, my friend, that you have read 23 issues of. Renew Your Vows. There is actually an AU yeah. where Sinister okay. Okay. launches a genocidal war to get his hands on spider DNA. Okay. All right. You're you are absolutely right. Um and you know, maybe that actually it's really good that you bring that up because again we have that tie. Uh Spider-Man is weirdly he is the Kimmy Gibbler for the X-Men. He just kind of shows up from next door and is like, I can come too, right? And you know, DJ Tanner Vereen is like, you have to let my best friend come, and everybody else just puts up with it. But only um, Christian. Yeah, mutants. you're you're not wrong. You're not freaking wrong, which I find I do find hilarious because they did have a very interesting lineup. They made Bamp Snick happen. Yeah, and the so fact like, that they, they that Sinister is thinking it too. But also now we have we have a Colossus Kurt mix up like mm -hmm. that could go wonderfully well because talk about coming in like a wrecking ball. <laughs> I'm just saying. And here's to Miley having a number one this week with Flower. <laughs> Congratulations, bro. Uh, I have been a Miley stand like my actual entire life, and uh, I, I've had the pleasure of working for her in Disney World before. And like I don't I don't care. I'm such a Miley freak. It's fine. Um, but I. I, I, I do I do find it funny. Yeah, before you go off on that tangent, because I feel it's funny. But like what I find funny is that the Spider-Man Chimera went in, mm. but the Spider-Man Chimera has the biggest danger sense and mm -hmm. knows how to avoid that shit. Yet he went in clutching a book 
and didn't somehow feel that there would have been a, a BAMP shield that would have kept him out. Like, I'm yes, they had to get rid of him because I don't think he could have stuck around for everything that they wanted him or what we wanted him to do. But still, it was like, um, no. For me, I kind of thought that was the point that the book was trying to sort of show us that while Mother Righteous might be one of the gooder guys and <laughs> better ally, she there is a problem with fanaticism no matter what. And she feeds on fanaticism. This only works if there are fanatics for her. There can be, Funny. you know, people who are slightly more in the know, but there need to be fanatics too. And the fact that this little spider bamf couldn't do anything but die for Mother Righteous was to me kind of that big reminder that like even if she's going to help, even if she's going to be part of the eventual solution there's a price She sounds like a cult leader Yeah, like, oh, if, yeah. like if you're reading her lines oh you can, you can tell that she sounds like a cult leader and she specifically targeted the youngest mm -hmm. and and the, the least experienced and of, it's of that universe. It's very much that, like, let them think it was their idea. Uh huh. Absolutely. Like she's she's a predator. The fact that she says, "Oh yes, I'm one of the good ones." No, you aren't. No, you aren't. No, you no aren't. You're, you're targeting children and you're sinister. Ones. Right? Yeah. I'm like, you you literally your power is based on faith. The more faith you have coming in, the more your power affects things. So the very fact you said, I'm one of the good ones. Really, Frollo, are you? Are you? Are you? Because I'm very sure you're not. Like, it's too late to save Paris. Hellfire! Yeah, we oh know. Oh my god, we did know. you want to just start? I, I have the Clopan parts ready to go. I am here <laughs> to guess if you can sing the bells of Notre Dame. I'm always yeah. ready to go. Um, yeah. So... I, this is an amazing opportunity to talk about something with you that I would love to all talk about. Um, I was just thinking, listening to you guys talk about Chimeras and the Colossus and Nightcrawler fusion, um, Uncanny 194 has a really unbelievable cover for this era. It is Rogue having absorbed Nightcrawler and Colossus while Nimrod defeats Juggernaut. Right. This like, there is, is so much going on. This is as Legion of X and Nightcrawlers a cover as you mm -hmm. can possibly have. Mm -hmm. This is so much of what we're talking about now. And I would love if, you know, she would like to join us. I would love if Evelyn would want to join the party and uh, talk with us a bit about this amazing state of affairs. Evelyn, if you're good to join the party, we'd love to have you. I've been listening to everything and <laughs> laughing my butt up, loving it. Um, yeah, I, I, my mind is just blown because it combines some of my favorite things, which is weird, probably unethical science and potential <laughs> probably unethical. Probably <laughs> unethical. Ooh. When you want to research, when you want to reset a universe, you kill someone. Yeah, probably unethical. Just a little. Reality like, eugenics. Oh. If there 
such an ethical dilemma. Like, splicing genes and, like, seeing what you can do with evolution would be so cool. But it's so wrong. Um, I may or may not be as sinister in a past life, maybe. Um, but it's... Um, my favorite thing about this, because I know we've talked about, like, whether or not it's an alchemy universe. Either way, I love it when we get to see a side of Earth when it's manipulated by someone. And the way it's been manipulated is fascinating to me. And I love how, like, not, like, just how sinister everyone is. Like, not to overdo the point, but it's true because, like taking out like captain america like getting mm -hmm. him to take that um <laughs> uh, getting him to take that x gene getting rid of the fantastic four getting rid of rid of wanda just in case which i thought was the way that was that was gorgeous coloring um mm -hmm. i thought that the art with all of the like spliced characters and like like new kind of like abomination kind of things was really well done um like you could really see like what they're going for it's like this is wrong this is bad like there's something off about this but it's like beautiful at the same time and just have it like i like my villains smart like oh, yeah. i'm like no there's no contingencies get rid of those big players like shoot the gun don't give a monologue like I, I would love to be a super villain personally. Um, <laughs> just kind of outing myself here. Like, my ideal life is a super villain. Um, but yeah, I just absolutely adored, like, like how smart everything is. I mean, yeah, it's not perfect. There's still, like, things that aren't solved. We obviously have Storm in her rebel mode, which I have to agree about the Star Wars aesthetic earlier. Like, I saw, I saw that, and I went, I like this. <laughs> and it was so, like, 80s, too, with, like, the 3D effects on the, um, on the wording. Um, it was really cool. So... See, everybody keeps saying Star Wars, for some reason, I was thinking closer to, like, oh, God, Buck Rogers or, um, Flash yeah. Gordon. Yeah, like the okay. serials that. I mean, I think it's a ton of, of influences it, and references. It's I also, 3D. It's the 3D vision that gives me that that more Star Star War Starbucks kind of you know like Flash Gordon ish kind of feel. There's also a lot of like in universe references too. I mean, the biggest thing for the first time I saw it up close um, and really looked at it, storms. Uh, outfit, you know, she has kind of the the mohawk helmet, sort of a Valkyrie esque component, but then she has a Magneto uh, collar, and mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, you can you see it right there. I really didn't notice it right there, but uh, you know, then there's a panel where she's confronting Mystique, and it's just a shot of her, and you see it, and you know, that's that's pure Eric. Well, and yeah, and, this... and look at the the helmet too. I mean, oh yeah, yeah. she's got influences definitely for Magneto. Yeah, the, and you know that she was the person keeping him alive and held him in his arms while he died, which I'm not going to talk about anymore. I'll start crying. Um, there, Ewing is really good to do references 
stylistically, uh, you know, to work with artistic collaborators that will make references with him, but then to really make sure that he has accounted for the in-universe references as well. Uh, even just, like, this team that is the Brotherhood um, and, like, really coalescing who would have survived out of the characters that we had at the last issue of Red. Um, I just think, you know, Ewing works really well with ingredients. Uh, you might not always want to order the dish again, but that first time you eat it, you will be really impressed at every single flavor and every little like spice that you realize is in there. And he creates a moment. Like yes. something Ewing does is he creates a vibe you want to go back to. Everybody mm -hmm. talks about sword and they always say like, oh, and then all the crossovers happened. The F you mean, then the crossovers <laughs> happened. The crossovers started at issue two. Mm -hmm. So it's that one fifty page first issue, then it's two, mm -hmm. three, four is King and Black, then it's mm -hmm. five, six, then like seven and eight are in a crossover. It was a crossover title, but he created such a moment with red number one that we all dial back into how it made us feel. There's a, a zeitgeist, a, an experience that fandom offers that, like, it's water cooler talk. And that's something that mm -hmm. Al Ewing can produce easily, whether it's his Defenders, whether it's X-Men Red. Al Ewing produces the conversation at the water cooler that dominates what we think about the stories the next day. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Just sometimes, like, and it's, it's, not, it's not exactly a gripe, it's just an observation. Sometimes he takes what might lend better to like an action book that doesn't require quite as much thinking and puts a little bit too much high-minded thinking into it, which sometimes can make it a little bit hard to follow when you're just going, I need to turn my brain off. Please kill things in fantastic ways. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's that he really does sort of ask a lot of you. Um, and I don't think, I think I never minded in the moment. I think that mm. first time I pick up the issue, I don't mind it. It is going back to it. Like for all of the, the amount that I enjoy talking about it with people and sort of like kikiing about the references to sort of have that moment in which I, when I'm going back and doing my reread, it's it's usually Ewing that feels the most like, oh, now I got to walk uphill. Yeah. yeah, that's actually for me. Honestly, that's a Dugan book. Um, a Depends Jerry... on the Dugan book for sure, but yes. I always feel like, oh, okay, I got to get back to that moment now. All right. Not like meant as an insult, but, you know, there's, there's right yeah, no. two I connect. And, like, definitely want to ask a thing, guys. And I want to ask specifically this crew. Raven, you are an artist. Evelyn, you are a cosplay artist as well as other things. You know, you make your own props. How did you guys feel about these three issues having predominantly the same artist to create a year by having the same artists doing year 10 on three books? You gave that year a vibe. Oh, for sure. Um, I really like the consistency of the art. Um, it really gave it a uh, cohesiveness that helped me, like, kind of place where everything was. Because I think the pace of Storm and the Brotherhood and um, 
Sins of Sinister was a little fast-paced, while Nightcrawlers is a little bit more, like, theological kind of thing. And so it was a little slower-paced, in my opinion, but having that cohesive art really helped keep me in the story. It helped um, keep my imagination going, and um, it made me care a little bit more than I think I would have about Nightcrawlers. At first... Because uh, I'm bad at names and I don't always necessarily pay attention to the page that tells me who did what. I was just like, okay, let's let's knock this block straight out. I know my reading order. Let's knock this block straight out. See how I feel and see if I want to go back for a second read. And I'm like, I felt like I was in the same book the whole time. There was just minor changes in pacing, which you would get, you know, watching like an episode of of something. So I was just like. I switched books, right? <laughs> like I, yeah, no, yeah. This art feels so familiar. And then it's like when I when I went back, I was like, oh, it's the same artist for all three of them. That was actually kind of a smart idea because it, I never felt like I broke the universe. I never felt like I was going to a different book to get a different story. It felt like, oh, okay, I'm going to a different part of the exact same story because I had that that look to help like keep everything very cohesive and together. So I appreciated it on a lot of levels. That it was Paco Medina was a really strong choice. Perhaps not what I would have chosen, but not like a really hard stylized artist that is going to make you feel like this is yeah this is the year 10 vibe this is year 10 throughout the issues and you know to be digestible uh i think like for instance an artist who i really like don't like everything he does but really like him and i would recommend him for a lot of stuff but would not think he would do great with for instance year 10 would be josh kasara mm -hmm. um it is i think the, these four issues are asking a lot of us and asking us to juggle a lot and work with a lot. And Kassar's art is pretty challenging and pretty harsh. And Medina does this thing where, like, especially his women, occasionally, panel to panel, angle to angle, will get this kind of, like, baby doll, sexy baby, like, duck lips look to them that I never hate because it's equal opportunity. Um, and he still manages to like, you know, it's never, oh, this is Storm, but she actually has a white woman's head and is just colored oh. black. Um, mm -hmm. He does really manage to like, this is a this is the black version of the baby doll look. This is the Asian woman version of the baby doll look. But it's this look that he has that, has this level of fun and innocence and camp to it that is just kind of like, hey, don't forget, this is comic books. No matter how dark and gritty and unhinged this gets, we can have a little bit of fun and we can, like, pose and get a little bit of our sexy baby on, particularly when the bodies aren't, like, offensively proportioned. If it's just, like, a little bit of face and some duck lip, it's all kinds of fun to me. So it's a, it's a little bit like Exterminator. Like you love to look at the artwork. Yep. There is a little, just a hint of that cheesecake, yep. but it always retains a lot of that. Nailed that it. 
yeah, that's strong. So yeah, I, I see what you mean. I see what you mean. Well played. Well played. <laughs> so I I am realizing the amazing time we are having. And Raven, I think we kept you a little bit longer than you were supposed to. Oh, it was worth well, every I enjoyed minute. It. Every I second. Worth. I love that. And I just want to thank you guys because you helped me realize something. I couldn't figure out why I loved the same artist on the same three titles. And that's when I realized it's because it reminds me of NBC sitcoms in the 90s and 80s. Mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. Empty Nest, Golden Girls, and Nurses all straight through. <laughs> and uh, it all feels like the same Susan Harris show. And then you throw in Blossom, uh, where Sophia Petrillo shows up in the first season. A little bit deep Golden Girls trivia for you right there. And um, it's perfect. So, Raven, I just want you to know you are the Susan Harris of, of my world right now. So, thank you Damn, for Damn, I gotta work here. harder to be Blanche. <laughs> <laughs> Raven, please tell us where we can find you on the web so we can uh, all look you up after this. Great place to find me on the web is actually TikTok now. Um, Sanguine Thread slash Inabathry. I'm growing the Inabathry. It's my storytelling. It's gonna be fun. It's gonna be interesting. It's gonna be drama. Um, and then Sanguine Threads, I do everything else. And of course, run my mouth as usual. <laughs> so, come find me. It's fun. We love having you. We can't wait to find you. And uh, we will have you back on as soon as we can. And until then, thank you so much for being with us. And I do believe that does mean that we have another friendly face to join our lovely Evelyn. And that would be Jonah. Hello, and everyone. It's Jonah. Uh, it's our two scientists. So it, it's... <laughs> that is true. So y'all better get real deep into the... the the science of the sins of sinister right let's, let's oh. start right away jonah where are you with sins of sinister uh i am uh bedraggled uh excited confused uh not very hopeful right now um <laughs> dreadful uh political intrigued and all these <laughs> other words making it into adjectives that aren't actually adjectives grumtralescent that's, I think, is just a made-up word. Mine were at least words that, in some context, worked. <laughs> I don't know what else to say other than... Um, it's hearing... from the Tugboat Maguire Saturday Night Live sketch of uh, Inside the After Studio with James Lipton. I don't know her. <laughs> Before your time, kiddo. It's not! <laughs> It's really not. Uh, <laughs> this kid, me. Hi, I'm the kid. Um, but I am really excited for this because I think ever since uh, way back at the dawn of X and we had House of X powers of 10 and we saw uh, the rule of Krakoa is there is amnesty for everyone regardless of what you have done. And ev we all saw a sinister and everyone was like, kind of looking at the uh, like sideways like should we be even be trusting sinister should sinister be the one exception of like maybe we don't let him on like I genuinely how sinister. anybody trusts joe on you when he was gossip girl and you know it's all about you and that's what sinister says to himself every day in the mirror it's all about you i and this is something that there was rumors rummaging people talking about in different fan spaces that I was hearing and different conjectures, whether it was on this show, anywhere else on the internet, that they were like, Sinister is always up to something. Nothing good could come out of this. And we're kind of seeing the culmination of 
Sinister's unfettered access to everyone's DNA and what that means. And I could not be happier with how everything is shaking out because, oh boy, it is not coming up roses for Sinister. Everything is going horribly wrong for him and I love it. Well, Absolutely. Yeah. Like, the best part about, like, mad scientists is, like, when their science runs mad out of their control. Like, I, it's a cliche, but I eat it up. It does bring me to my one, uh, like, not my one, but a place of conjecture that I really want to believe that we're not going to get through this entire event without some version of, like, Somebody knew he was going to do this. Even if it's Moira. Somebody well, What's well, that? I was to say Destiny. Destiny, well, Destiny. Destiny for Destiny sure. But I'm saying knows. like of Xavier Magneto and Moira, no. of the people who brought him on to do the genetics part of the project, I really want to believe that if we're not doing Xavier had a plan backup of Sinister's plan, um, I really would like to do Xavier mea culpa-ing and just being like that I thought I could handle this man makes me so stupid I do not deserve to work at Krakow and McDonald's um please put me in prison I just that is my only thing is the fact that like yeah it's so obviously gonna go bad because it's sinister I just want there to be one person who is like I actually had a plan for when this started happening. Yeah, for sure. Like for um, like for Charles, like even though he was like all um, diamond up um, when he said it's like a, mon a useful monster, still a monster. Like that's absolutely true. And I can't imagine he doesn't have a contingency. That being said, part of me wonders like, cause he mentions Eric a few times and I wonder if Eric was the contingency or Eric was the one with like all of the plans for that because they were really working together. Like they were husbands, they were sharing the load and now one of them's not there anymore. So I'm I would love that explanation that because would be it's, cool. it's, yeah, it's, that would be great. It, it's perilous. What's that? Talk about the prostate perilous. <laughs> oh God, Nico. <laughs> it's a really good explanation for why Xavier do anything or like you know there was no there was no salvation but it does give me that thing of like yeah eric and i suspected that he would betray us i just didn't think eric was going to die so that fucked up our plans i think that's brilliant but so, do you also think that xavier knew that he himself would die in this process because i think there's a difference of having a contingency when you yourself are alive and it's oh okay i i i, I see the situation now let me go through my plan versus I was killed before I knew I was going to be betrayed and now I have sister DNA in me and I'm sharing this rocking this diamond on my forehead. Well, speaking of diamonds that are in our amazing collection, Evelyn, it has been our pleasure having you with us. Uh, we again kept you longer than we were supposed to. We're so bad at this. But uh, it's just you're so much fun and you're so great and we love having you and you're so smart. So uh, I would love to get your final thoughts. Uh, give us your, your parting shots at Sins of Sinister uh, tell us where we can find you, and uh, thank you so much for being here. Um, I feel like I need a disclaimer. I am not a supervillain, and I have no um, current plans on being a supervillain. Uh, yay. <laughs> that being said, 
You can find all of my dastardly deeds on Instagram and Twitter at comic underscore canary. And uh, for those who are all ever cosplay fans, uh, not only is Ev an amazing cosplayer, but I love Ev's amazing uh, cosplay accessories. They're amazing. Definitely check them out. Worth looking at always. So Evelyn, thank you so much for being here. You are amazing. And we will see you soon. But speaking of someone who uh, has all the sexiness of a supervillain and uh, the mustache of a porn star, uh, there is nobody we could bring to this table right now that fits that bill, but the one, the only, Arturo Baby. Hola, mi gente. <laughs> hey, Arturo, where can everybody find you on the interwebs? Um, Mr. Toybox on Twitter and Instagram, and I am delighted to be here. Um, absolutely obsessed with Sins of Sinister. I'm enjoying this more than anybody has a right to. Um, I think it's fantastic. I I want to address the, the question of whether this is an AU or does any of this matter? Everybody cares. I'm so into this. Yes, Please. This absolutely matters because in so many ways, Nico, you said it really well when you said, um, you know, Kieran loves, he plays with other people's toys so affectionately and so well. And in so many ways, this is landing a lot of a lot of the bits that came out in house and powers um that just blew my mind away in such a way because that was one like data pages were still a novelty and it was you know you're reading about these generations of chimera and all the and it's like the mind spirals thinking of like what that could be and this is it this is this is this is that coming to fruition this is this is the version of that we're going to get i know it's a different timeline than the one that we saw uh there wherein sinister was publicly executed by the man machine supremacy so apart and separate from that timeline reality pocket whatever you want to call it i'm obsessed also with the fact that rasputin's coming back <laughs> that's what ties this to that in a way that is so satisfying i just and it. i think you bring up a really good point which is that like we did get kind of like a hey you'll know we're in the end game uh you know when house of power started it was like you'll know we're in the end game when we get to these elements that you saw here you know things like uh, Sinister and the Chimera and you know he had breeding pits on Mars so we definitely are outside of the timeline but okay, one more time I'm just saying so close. Prostate Perilous breeding, <laughs> breeding pits on Mars yes 100% um, that this has been one of the really uh, kind of heartening displays of the fact that yeah we decided that Krakoa was not a one-off three-year event um, that we're so deep into this that we now have to change some of the like play around with the future markers and how we reference dominions and how we reference the phalanx because it can't be the way that we foreshadowed it would happen originally because that way was really tied to this impermanence of Krakoa and since Krakoa really might be the long 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 game now not even the five-year game because we're basically past that at this point 
this might be the 10 to 20 year game so we've got to change up the the literally the timeline not just for when things happen but the way in which so many things happen and i think what you point to arturo is just some of the best examples that we see of saying like hey everything that you saw is still really important we just want to show you how it's different now and i think we kind of need that to feel like this isn't just a a, a one-off time that we're going through yeah i mean hickman gave us so many cool devices to you know or gave the creatives i guess and left them you know for the creatives after to do so much with with this new status quo, right? From Resurrections to uh, Moira, um, it was just mindfuck after mindfuck and, you know, the possibilities were endless, right? When Inferno subverted some of that and found a different solution to the Moira problem, which was curing her, right? That, in a way, was kind of like, oh, okay so that's no longer a threat like it does like moira's next life is no longer a thing moira's a threat but like in a different way and the fact that sinister just made a small farm of moira clones and used them as like save points and just took that idea that hickman created which is a big thing to wrap your head around and he just like stretched it to its like limit you know and and has done so much Fun stuff with it that there's still that one Moira clone, I guess. That you know, the Chekhov's gun. As, as uh, did you say, TK, or was it Jake? It was Jake. Brilliant. Um, floating around out there, like yes, we are going to get back to you know some form of status quo, but mark my words, some things are going to be different. And I well, think Rasputin's probably coming back with it, God willing, and maybe Cardinal, but I don't know. I don't, he doesn't have the spunk that Rasputin has. Rasputin's going to come back, I hope. I'm terrified for Mystique and or Destiny. That seems like a worrisome thread where Destiny has chosen this hellish reality because it's the one wherein she's still with her wife. But maybe that's not the case, you know, five minutes after we go back to the timeline. Who knows? So I'm worried about them. And Sinister will... Sinister's fucked. Honestly, Sinister is definitely not going back to the Wyatt Council. Sinister's amnesty well, is hereby revoked. We already have seen oh, covers oh, with oh, Sinister oh. all over them. We've seen covers with all four Sinisters making out alive, having a little cabal, <laughs> having a little conversation, not in the pit, not executed. Like the 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 solicit engine here did them no favors. Because I've already seen a cover with all four of them sitting around talking about the fallout of Sins of Sinister. And so, like, I know they've got to end okay. And that, like... That's fascinating. Well, yeah, well, that goes back to the reset, right? Because we already lost uh, Dr. Stasis, the first Sinister to fall, right? Uh, Taken out by... Shout out to the Nightcrawlers and uh, the Laura Kinney vamp with a... Not a blade hidden in her toe this time, but in the tail. Which, what a great oh, use of And, you know, I think that with the the Nightcrawlers, right, that's such a great thing to pick on because, Jonah, it's like it was tailor-made for you between oh, Laura, Katie, Nightcrawler, this idea of the spark representing the positivity of hope and warmth and um, ideology because at one point, Xavier was the idealist. 
and then sort of like Scott became the ideologue and then Magneto became the ideologue and we played around with it. But one of the big things in this era of X as, uh, you know, X as like, um, like a brand is there's different kinds of ideologue and there's different kinds of hope and storm and Nightcrawler really represent two sides of that. And I would love to get how you felt about Nightcrawlers, this dream team for you. Oh, it was it, it was everything. I mean, we got um, we we got the small taste of what what I could expect in the Nightcrawlers. Uh, seeing the uh, the Peter Parker um, Night uh, Nightcrawler mix, and I was like, that one that one specifically was for me. That one they that that one they did for me, and it it was just so. It was nice to see Nightcrawler get his flowers in a way that you wouldn't expect him to get his flowers. He was the prettiest princess, and he got—he won the pageant. He can buy was... flowers. Yeah, he can uh, buy his own ring. He can love himself. Um, sit, jump in front of his own grenade. Uh, That—that's how that's the lyrics, right? <laughs> um, Talk about Bruno Mars pits. The Bruno Mars. God damn pits. it, everyone. Oh God, oh, this episode. Um, <laughs> but I was, you know, seeing the solicit, seeing, looking at the titles of everything that's going to come out, especially when we're, we're approaching this. And I saw Nightcrawlers, and I was like, oh. And then we see the cover, and it's just, you know, a bunch of chimeras with Nightcrawler. And I'm like, well, how could I not love this? How could I not, you know? And also get to think about it in, in the a realistic sense. While Nightcrawler is not the most powerful mutant by any means necessary, he can't do things that Iceman, Gene, Storm can do. He has a very uh, useful power set that you can throw on anybody. Who wouldn't want the ability to teleport, to be able to cling to walls, to have to be uh, very dexterous, even more so if you already are? It's he has the very the very basic um, template of throw this onto anybody, and it'll it'll be pretty helpful no matter who it is. Plus the secondary mutation of just being blue fuzzy and really sexy which just permeates i mean that does that does help he is very attractive uh shout out also to cyclops's x genes which also like nightcrawlers pair remarkably well um and sinister's nasty boys yes look at nico nico is one of the nasty boys right now it's so funny that like that's just sinister's baseline favorite like he just Everybody's got to have eye blasts, you know. He'll I mean, make look at his cat, his, his cat, his uh, uh, or a Serata team, like just giant eyeballs that can blast. That he still, after all this time, after the powers of Jean Grey of every mutant, is still like. But you know what? Everybody's got to have eye blasts, like my first boy. Are you saying that he's myopic? <laughs> God damn it. Uh, no, uh, no. Okay, I got some information from Raven on it. I got some information from Evelyn on it. TK, you can take a quick nap because you already shared your thoughts. Unless you have more, it's up to you. <laughs> but uh, gentlemen below me, handsome, handsome gentlemen, I would love to know how you both feel about this idea of the consistency of the art. And I think the reason that I am so fascinated by this consistency of art on year 10 is because We've had a dozen titles in the last two years with seven inkers. We've had titles where one person isn't able to finish the lettering because of the deadlines. We have, is, we have had whole issues where artists have been like, yeah, that got bullpenned. 
I, I have no idea what those pages are. Those are not my pages. So how do you guys feel about the dedication to the consistency of the art to create the atmosphere of year 10? Definitely, I think this is something that the entire X Office and Marvel recognizes that how important this event is, how massive um, the, the scale of what this event means, represents, and what it's going to change, especially once we get closer to the fall of Sinister. And I think they recognize it's really important to make sure there is a consistency, there's a level of professionalism, and there's a level of dedication to making sure everything looks correct, beautiful, nice, and cohesive. And I think uh, we're seeing that here where they really want to make sure it all comes together to create the product. And not to say that every other event, every other title, doesn't that doesn't go into it. But because this event is changing everything and basically putting its hand in everybody's cookie jar, essentially, they have to really make sure that everything is on point when it comes to the art especially so i am really impressed that they are making sure that everything does look cohesive collective and nice yeah i uh, i couldn't agree more it's there's a couple things about this that i just love the the compression of it i think is refreshing and we all were, were touching on that earlier it's just it, it kind of leaves me wanting more right like i i want more of this but that's a good thing that, that I want more and that I'm not feeling like, oh my God, we're still, what, it's 12.15 versus it was 12 o'clock last week, I guess, like 15 minutes have passed. And, like Judgment Day? Okay, yeah. Um, which wasn't bad. I, I don't want to like shit on that event, but. No, it's an interminable. It was, but it was just sprawling and, you know, but it was cool. It was it was cool. But this a there's good a, time that doesn't end is still a good time that doesn't end. I've wanted to leave vacations before. Exactly. Exactly. You always do, right? And there's a part of me that, yeah, of course we all want to like go back to the books and we're, you know, elated that certain books that we thought were ending at ten are not just ending, they're they're actually coming back. We're getting eleven. We're you know. So that's all super exciting. And it's and it lets you know that yes, all of this is going to, you know, not matter. But I again say it will matter. And the art is a wonderful way of making it super cohesive, making it feel like like we're in the same world. And I want to say that there's still a vibe shift from book to book, right? Mm -hmm. Like Storm had a different vibe than Nightcrawlers has a different vibe than Emma, but it is very cohesive. And Emma. Yeah. <laughs> and Emma. Oh my god, I swear. <laughs> Emma. I mean, that's what it is, y'all. Like, yeah. it's the M book. Yeah. Like, 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 just call it what it is. Like, these are like, but despite those being like the big anger points, we have so many fun other threads. We've got Sebastian Shaw as like liaison to hell. We have the waiting room uh, repurposed as a new realm of hell. Like, fucking great stuff. We've got like Arako taken to this horrible conclusion where it's now like an asteroid belt, which is kind of, you know, poetic. Like, asteroid M-ish kind of you know we're back to hiding in the asteroids there's just poetry in this and it's fantastic and i love the art and i love the writing and i love i can't think of finer hands than dylan and ewing to land some of the stories that uh that hickman started can i shout out one of my favorite panels yeah um, 
uh, the panel where uh, Storm is confronting the Quiet Council of Sinisters, and is like, that's not Nightcrawler, and they're like, uh-oh, you're right, <laughs> and so uh, uh, Emma and Charles, and, and I think it's also Exus and Hope, are like trying to enter her mind to mind control her, and uh, it's just that panel of her eyes, it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen, um, and I... I it was so. It was just it, one of those moments that's just like actually stuck with me. Of like, how like Tuka. But the fact that every single member of the Quiet Council basically went full mistress and just went <laughs> the whole time. Evil babies all around. That seriously, every one of them was just like, you guys, you're Storm, Storm Laduca, Storm Laduca. She's got some mysterious. Storm Laduca. She was just all. No, Storm is actually the greatest X Men. She's not deluded about being one of the greatest X Men. Agreed, but I mean, everybody. I don't want to political. Everybody, you know, just it was such a sweet moment of like, you know, one of the things I started this with is I think Sinister is a giant baby, like. He really is behaving like a five-year-old who wants his way, and when things don't go right, he resets his toys, because to him, they're all toys. And he's not even really a mutant. He is a genetic experiment that made himself a mutant, so he's not like even a mutant. Jonah! So, I, um... <laughs> so, um, anyway... I wait. No, I added him back. Where'd he go? Okay, sorry. <laughs> You're here now. <laughs> um, yeah, I I just generally feel that as we're heading toward the end of this segment, um, my vantage of this is the hardest part for me is how fake a lot of it feels. Um, it all feels really, really engineered. Like every story for the last four issues was just ramping up their part of this, unless it's just ramping up for Fall of X. And I think the artifice is the nature of it being sinister. You don't have, you don't put Splenda in your tea and then complain that your tea tastes artificially sweet. So like, if I'm choosing to read Sins of Sinister, I know I'm getting, you know, Splenda sickness. So I don't know, the artifice works for me. I, if I had to rate them, I would say it's Nightcrawler, Storm in the Brotherhood, they're like really right near each other and then like immoral x-men with sins of sinister over here because it's like all of them and it's eating them and i don't want to make a decision so guys rank them tell me where we can find you on the interwebs and uh thank you so much for being here and amazing and beautiful creatures let's start with arturo okay um i refuse to rank them they are all excellent you have to read them all don't read one and not read the others if you are going to do that horrible mistake then i guess read sins of sinister because that's just that's that's the that's what sets the whole table but do yourself a favor pick them all up it's just this is a great series it's not going to be that long you're not going to get a uh, series fatigue or whatever crossover fatigue um, and yeah, fuck yeah, Sinister, and all of his shenanigans. And uh, you can find me at Mr. Toybox on Twitter and Instagram. Amazing. And Jonah, same question to you. Uh, so for me, uh, it's no surprise to anybody who's listened to me on this show for the few years we've done this. Nightcrawler is number one, but then I'll put everything else equally uh, where else they need to be. Um, like Arturo said, uh, I think you are doing yourself a little bit of disservice if you're not picking this up or you're not reading everything. But if you all can only choose to pick one right now, 
Uh, since the sinister is probably the most important, you'll probably get the most important information out of that, and then you can everything else will kind of like you know trickle back in. Um, I will say I do love the name change of the Quiet Council book, going from immortal X Men to immoral. That name change is just so. I don't know. They obviously a lot of things are planned out in advance, and I don't know if they lucked into that. I don't know if that was something they somebody realized. Like, hey, we can just drop a T. Um, it, that, Are you saying they decided that in the sinister arc someone was going to drop the tea? That's the tea. And that's on period, sis. Spill it, drop it. <laughs> um, I'm mending my answer, immoral X Men, or as I refer, affectionately refer to it, Emma. Emma. Oh, Emma, Dommy Mommy, Emma calling the Quiet Council meeting, and there's the, what is it called? The crosses that are, that are X's. Like the dominatrix. Yeah, God. Saint. Somebody. They do have a name. I just don't have it off the top of my head. Just awesome. St. Andrew's Cross. Thank you. Thank you, Tori. Thank you. Tori, good job. Awesome. The hive mind works. It's such a great subtle thing because it's an X, but it's, come on. Like, so that, you know, amending my answer to Immoral X-Men is probably... Shit. And you see the divine Emma Frost, as she calls herself. Oh, it's uh, to just quickly talk about to just piggyback off that really fast, not to keep going for too long. Uh, that that book, um, I love where Emma is now, but sometimes it is nice to go back and like, oh no, Emma was really a dominatrix back in back in her day when we were first in introduced to her. And sinister, you you big old dumbass, uh, you big old dummy, I should say. Um, <laughs> why did you send Cyclopses at her? <laughs> yes, like like she said. No. She can make a Cyclops do whatever she wants. Uh, and just her, her with Sinister in a collar, uh, like on your knees, beg for it. It's just... It's beautiful. Beautiful. Well, as beautiful as the two of you, thank you guys so much for being here with us. And we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back with some Rogue, some Gambit, some oh wait no tk your order oh oh i th okay yeah well so mine the only thing i'm gonna say is um i actually think because since of sinister only gets a one and a, and a second one at the very end of this it is not the most important to read i'm gonna throw it to nightcrawlers because nightcrawler shows us what the other sinisters are doing and that's key for this but it's also going to be key for fall of x so, uh, I'm giving it to Nightcrawlers. <laughs> hey, everybody. Welcome back to Exes for Podcast. Um, Exes for Show. Wow, the names are so crazy. Um, I want to just real quick say, before I can forget, uh, yeah. if you happen to be at Planet Comic Con, Kansas City, March 17th through 19th, 2023, you are formally engaged, welcomed, and charged to go check out the incredible Blake's Buzz Blake is going to be running around that convention for the first time as full press. And uh, there are very few people in this world, I think, as highly of in terms of comic media as Blake's buzz. We love Blake. Uh, Blake is, you know, just an absolute effing superhero. And so uh, make sure if you're at that convention, the 17th to the 19th, you uh, find Blake and uh, give him a fist bump. Mm -hmm. Buy him a beer. He's a big beer guy, right? So uh, anyway... I'm super excited to get back to our show and not yeah. just uh, plug some of the most talented people that we know. Yeah. Uh, we have had such an amazing run the last couple of weeks with things like uh, getting to do Daredevil with Tim Burnham and Tori Sheehan, who, of course, everyone knows from the incredible The Billy Club. 
And, um, you know, it, it's been really interesting because as we've been expanding our coverage, something that occasionally I get nervous about is that, like, we're losing the X. And I, I don't think we're losing it. I think it's growing and changing. And then you get a week where the reaction to books is the reaction we've had to Rogue and Gambit, to Captain Britain. And it's just the kind of thing where, like, it reminds me why we're doing, like, the X stuff as special episodes sometimes or why, you know, we have an upcoming X-Men catch-up episode going on where we're going to look at arcs of several books in a row. Um, really excited for that. But, you know, how have you been feeling about these books and our switch between so many worlds? I think one thing that we all, whether we know it or not, agree on is that the Marvel Universe works best when it is diverse and holistic. And the reason why the period where the mutants were depowered really didn't work is because they weren't a full-fledged part of the Marvel Universe. They were just kind of this weird, uh, unsheltered offshoot. And the reason why the MCU never feels quite complete is because it is without the X-Men. The thing that makes the X-Men feel so important, and the only thing that can make the metaphor of being the other in the world, is to have the world. Yeah. And the X-Men can't feel like relevant superheroes and people who are dealing with how to exist without other people that are existing a different way. You can't have the moment of heartbreak that is Cyclops saying, you know, you guys have treated my family horrible for all these years. What did you think we were going to do without the Fantastic Four existing? And I can't just be that they exist. They have to be people. They have to, it has to be a world. And, you know, Sue has to have a believable internal life where I can understand where she's coming from when she says, what were you guys thinking? And I can love her and be mad at her and think she should divorce her husband and have sex with Namor. So to take it back, I love doing the other coverage, even if I'm a huge X-Men guy, because what it means is I understand the world that the X-Men live in. And I understand the reflections of myself that I can see in more mainstream titles plus i can fall in love with tiger division which represents cultures and people and powers i know nothing about but i i love to learn and fall in love with them too speaking of people that we have fallen in love with yeah we could never discuss these amazing books without the help of some incredible voices so i would like to bring series creator jonah back to the stage incredible contributor and creator of the Billy Club, Tori Sheehan, and longtime contributor, an amazing guest who has recently returned to the X-Pack, Robbie, back to the show. And I want to start with, now Jonah, you've been with us for a little bit uh, in the episode, but Tori, Robbie, you're both coming to the first uh, segment of the episode for you. So give us your socials and uh, just Tori, start off that with... shirt. Oh, I know. Being, being social is uh, draining. Yes. Oh, that's mad cute. Yeah. It yeah. is, social and I feel you that. are just the best. <laughs> Sorry, Nico, I kind of interrupted you giving instructions on what to do, but I had to for the shirt. For the shirt. I mean, for the shirt. So, yeah. uh, so give us your socials, and I want to know which of these two books held your attention more. Jonah, you let us know which of these two books held your attention more afterward for me, okay? 
So for my social is Age of Polaris, where you find me on Twitter. And then uh, the one that held my attention the most was definitely Rogan Gambit. I would say a lot more than the other one. Nice. All right. <laughs> now, uh, Tori, queen of my heart, uh, a person I cannot seem to do a single project without immediately being like, look, I know you don't read this, but you want to read this really quick. <laughs> Guess what? You're reading it now. <laughs> uh, hi, I'm Tori. You can find me on Twitter at Tori underscore Sheehan and on Instagram at SM Tori. That's Tori with an I. Um, I uh, texted Nico after reading both of these going, I don't think I know enough about these to chat about them. Um, but obviously I'm a big Rogue fan and I really enjoyed Captain Britain for the, the character work uh, because I was deeply confused by the rest of it. But... I want to ask you this, Tori, as somebody who recently made up a uh, an X team. Listen, listen, listen. I walked into that Rogue and Gambit thing and I started reading it. And I was like, so when I was just like, yeah, Destiny comes in and just sort of shoots off some stuff and then Rogue goes to figure it out. I was like, wow, this is great storytelling. I should really learn more about like what Destiny is about. Now I'm just like, nah, I hit it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I got it. Exactly. <laughs> Check. Yeah, <laughs> you nailed it. Yeah, Question nailed it. answered, and okay, yeah. Uh, Jonah, which one did you love the most? Uh, so for me personally, uh, I liked Captain Britain the most. Yeah. Um, I was, you know, it's been a while since we got to read um Knights of X, and I, you know, it was a book that I really enjoyed, and we got to the end of it, you know. We get to see, you know, it, it was that big culmination of Rachel and Betsy getting together, which we kind of like, you felt the tension, you felt like there was something more between them, you felt like their relationship was something that was a little bit more than just friends, and the fact that we got to have it canon, and that now they kind of just travel the multiverse, saving other Captain Britain, saving other Betsy's, I like that, and I really... It was just, it was just nice that we got to see them again, we got to see them kiss again, it was really cute, really adorable, um, and you know... Morgan Le Fay is a character that's been in play for a while that I don't think anybody was using. And we're like, oh, well, I guess she would be a threat. And she would be trying to turn Britain against everybody. Played by Elizabeth Hurley on The Runaways, just if you need a reference in your mind as you're giving this woman a voice in the comics. Oh. Now, okay. I okay. want to comment about two things about these. Wait, hold on. Wait. Also, oh. nemesis to Jessica, jo uh, Jessica Drew. <laughs> Yeah, knocks her right out of the sky while she's flying. Uh, just, just a zephyr, just out the sky. Um, for me, it was Captain Britain by uh, uh, a margin. Not a big margin, but I'm already a bigger Captain Britain guy than I am a Rogue Gambit guy. I want to say that for me, one of the things I thought that set Captain Britain apart was the depth of the illusion that they worked to cover with a book being so about magic and sorcelment and the creation of the illusion, I found the idea that they used covers of Captain Britain and Betsy and credited them as photo by, and then said, for more information, see the Captain Britain omnibus archive, oh. as though it was meant to be in universe, like you're reading Pete Wisdom's strike file. And oh. The idea of the surrender to this, this sense of whimsy really for me is the strength of the storytelling of Captain Britain 
And the other thing that I thought that Captain Britain did with uh, a dexterity that I'm, I'm really missing other places is Teak and I have read uh, every damn word of the Spider-Verse at this point. Like, if it's called Spider-Verse, we've read it down to, like, AUs and children's picture books, okay? So we've read literally everything. And this does Spider-Verse logic a little better than Spider-Verse does. And that's the nature of a good Captain Britain story, and that's something that the original writer, as he's supposed to be called, but it's really Alan Moore, don't hex me, um, and Alan Davis really sought out to create. So I'm really positive on it, and I'm really glad to see it. TK, I'd love to get your take on what is definitely a Spider-Verse parallel for so many yeah. Um, and it goes back to a thing that I was talking about earlier, which is fatigue. Um, fatigue for people who work on things. Like, it just... The Spider Office probably really has never stopped doing Spider-Verse. Uh, you know, they are... Because it takes so long to produce a comic book, and but then also in event... What's that? And now Venomverse. And, right. Because it takes so long to produce these things, even if you are not seeing them published, that does not mean... There is not somebody whose job it is to be thinking about it. And, you know, there's not interns that are drawing up, you know, information about it. There's not creatives that are putting together files about it. And I think there is a bit of Spider-Verse fatigue in the Spider-Man office because it just never stops. It never stops being Spider-Verse. And without a break and without you know getting new minds on it you do just start to fall into what happens with fatigue captain britain and the multiverse that really you know the the trapping of the idea of the 616 is a captain britain thing so captain britain really is a standard bearer for multiversity in the marvel universe but we haven't had a real captain britain in a, we hadn't before the Krakoan era started. And the Krakoan era was very kind and ramped us up really well to get back into the Captain Britain multiversity of the Marvel Universe. But in doing all of that and doing all that great work, yeah, they are really knocking it out of the park with showing us how we want the multiverse to function, how we as readers can really resonate with it. I do think because of everything I'm saying, uh, it's it's Captain Britain for me, but I think I'm a really positive on Rogue and Gambit. I have accepted them as a couple that is not going to break up, and I don't want them to. I, Rogue I'm not, and Magneto. I would like to get Eric back to life first, and then we can discuss other things. Tori, put that away. They are the most perfect couple of all time. <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, sure, them. but but I just. Okay. Um, it's tough for me to really care about what heterosexuals are doing at any given point, but I really, I do root for these two. I really root for Ascani and Captain Britain, and I just think, you know, if what we just saw in Sins of Sinister was the work being done to show us how the Krakoan era can continue for 10 to 20 years, this Captain Britain shows us what can happen for a lot of characters if Krakoa were not to continue to make them part of the Marvel Universe. 
Side note, uh, Kevo, that's a really great point. I hadn't considered that some people only have Rogue and Magneto from the movies, and now I am definitely throwing up in my mouth. I'm just the I'm just a movie and '90s cartoon roger. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> uh, Rogue and Magneto have an incredible arc. Where Magneto is a hot forty in the comics at all times. Yes, he is a hundred and twelve year old man <laughs> technically, but he was once de-aged to a baby, so it's okay. He has no age now, but Listen, he has the physique of a, a hot 40-year-old that has done a good deal of trend. So um, it's okay. This is not an age thing. This is a I don't think Magneto swings that way thing. I agree with that as well. I, I, I think do. Magneto is very pan. Yes, but I, I think that he really needs to focus on his husband right now. Mm-hmm. Okay, so to, to, to back to this for a minute, I want to start with, okay, I obviously have, have voiced my opinion. I don't see Rogue as a character that needs a romantic story to bind her. And my issues with often these stories is the domestication of the male character is removing his edge, and the domestication of the female character is putting her in her apron. And there's something about this idea that you can just sort of throw characters that are from a superhero trope into a romance and it'll work fine. It just never works for me. But these two books did it with excellent work. And I thought that was because Rogue and Gambit made sure that all of the the interpersonal stuff was the hype. It wasn't the actual event. They're in this because of the family stuff. But it's still a, it's still a story with Manifold, who is one of the greatest characters Marvel has produced in the last 10 years. And, you know, it's still a story with Yuriko, who... So Tori, Tori, listen to me. Do you remember I remember her, her from the Deadpool. Do you remember yes, the young Japanese woman that Bullseye is like semi-stalking that Matt works with in Japan? You know she becomes Lady Deathstrike, right? I've heard this, yes. Yes. That's it's, how I got very confused when there was a Lord Deathstrike. Yeah, it's so it's so <laughs> insane. I don't even I love Lady Deathstrike and I love that she's actually a Daredevil character, but I had trouble with it. Mm-hmm. Um so I thought that that was great. I also thought one of the strongest things that they did with this story was they went out of their way to craft a narrative where Betsy and Rachel's love was lovely. It was part of the story. You could even be from Alabama and you wouldn't try to pass a law against it. Mm. So I would really love to get your guys' take on the nature of romance comics, superhero comics, and if you want boners in your battles. I think their uh, superheroes and romance go hand in hand together. Uh, people love shipping. People love romance. I, I, you know, how many countless TV shows are about people coupling up? Uh, how many TV shows are truly, like, if you really think about it, a large market... Friends, but they all bang. <laughs> a, lar- <laughs> a large market of you know media that a lot of people consume are romance tv shows and i you see how that does extend into comics um there's absolutely a place for it especially i think there is doubly even a place where you want it to make it the focus where you have you know the super the superhero-ness is the backdrop to the romance of it all um i for me in these books i was was on board especially finding out that they were going to be focusing on these couples but i am fascinated to see when they are, when these relationships are the biggest spotlight and they are the draw of the comic, are they able to hold up for everything? For me, 
uh, Rogue and Gambit slightly, very slightly missed the mark a little bit for uh, for my taste because the last I really remember Rogue and Gambit interacting as a couple was them in that hot tub saying we should you know follow that rule and make some more mutants. And yeah, I forgot he wasn't dead. I was so confused. It's they outside of the um, initial um, what, what what was it um um um. Magic effect. They had Apocalypse. I've truly forgotten the name of it. Excalibur. 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 Thank you. Sorry. Um, <laughs> it wasn't. I, I. Please correct me. I don't think we saw that. We've seen them in a very coupley light since their initial Excalibur um, team up and pairing. We really that, haven't. Yeah, we haven't. That the seeing them come into it into a fight, I think, was a little jarring. Because the last we saw them as a couple that I really remember was them wanting to make more mutants. And so it was a little bit of, obviously, plenty of time has passed, but the energy didn't really feel the exact same in that moment. Um, but ultimately, I do think the genre of romance can lead itself to some very interesting and fun stories. You just have to be a little bit careful of what kind of romance you're portraying. And I don't think, I think both these books are portraying romance in a very healthy and beautiful way, but you just have to think about, you know, you have to make romance interesting because not everybody wants to see a kind of a couple in love because I am out, and from what I gather, it's a little bit boring, you know. You, you do need the spice. You do need, you do need that, um, you do need the knife of how are you going to cut the romance? How are you going to cut the sexual tension? Uh, I would say I definitely uh, love romance and comics. I eat that up all the time. And, uh, but for example, when it comes to like Rogue and Gambit, they were probably like the first like comic book or superhero couple that like I saw as like a little kid when I was watching X-Men cartoons. Mm -hmm. So like I, I have that like attachment to them. Uh, so... Yeah, I'm gonna ship them for life. And uh but yeah, overall with romance and stuff, I clearly not every book needs it, but um I felt like for these two books, um it was really cute to see. It was mad cute. <laughs> it's weird because comic books these days do such low numbers no matter what that we're kind of stuck like we kind of just always have to accept that they're not going to do great numbers and that's frustrating it feels like the industry is still trying to get back 90s numbers and that's never going to happen but i feel like i'm seeing them publish more and more niche and i fully can understand that these are two books that the niche is small this is a small group that is interested in what really is for all the action it's going to have because it's a comic book it's a romance book it's okay for it to be a romance book there's really fantastic romance manga there are other fantastic romance comics they tend to be more independent or like of something like the archie universe but like i love that this exists in marvel it's just what is the bar for success what are the numbers? And the problem is we'll never know the digital numbers on these. We'll never know how it does on Unlimited. Marvel will absolutely, they will build the hill on which to die <laughs> yeah. before they reveal these numbers. Yeah. 
It we'll is. never know how, you know, in a year, this might be the book that ever in three months, this might be the book that everybody picks up on Unlimited. Like, Unlimited might be where this thing thrives, but we'll never know. And so it's really tough sometimes. I think we get into these discourses in fandom around, you know, what's popular and what people want. And we kind of know when the big ones happen uh, because everybody's talking about them and everybody is talking about like, you know, Sins of Sinister or Judgment Day. So we know it's popping off a little bit, but I don't think we have as good an idea when something like a uh, Rogan Gambit, especially uh, when something like a Rogan Gambit is, is, is successful. Captain Britain is an interesting, uh, it's in an interesting place because it really is Excalibur's, the Excalibur slash Otherworld trilogy part three. Um, you know, it's really picking up exactly where we left off in Knights. It's the exact same format as Knights. It's most of the same characters from Knights. All of that's really cool, but then it's also, we knew we were getting this extra thing, which is we're finally seeing, you know, Betsy and Rachel love each other. And it's a specific kind of love that I really want to comment on. It is, and this is meant really positively, but like everybody on this table right now is currently queer, right? And several of us are types of queer that also include heteronormative affection, right? So like I myself as a pan person can imagine myself laying in bed next to a woman as well as, you know, my male partners. And like, there was something so not gendered about the nature of Betsy and Rachel in bed together in a way that I need to compliment because I, I was saying today that uh, I was teaching a, a class to some advanced high schoolers and one of them said something and I was like, I'm gagged. And like, <laughs> I just didn't bother with code switching. I'm just over it. And like, the kids don't care. They just immediately roll with it. I think they think maybe better of the not code switching. Um, and so there's something to be said about where it's necessary to put on code. It's necessary to... And by that, I mean, like, talk in the language of the people. Like, when I'm with my gay friends, I want to be gay. Like, I want to celebrate my queerness. And when I'm with my Latin friends and Latin family, like one of my best friends, whenever I go to her place, immediately she's talking in Spanish. So I need to be listening in Spanish. And as a non-native speaker who is Spanish, who learned it, uh, you know, it's, it's always a little dicey how much I pick up when she is being really fluid with her friends. But if I'm there, she's speaking Spanish. And, and I just got to keep up. And there's something to be said about the nature of how that feels natural. It feels comfortable. It feels safe to be in that environment. And I was afraid that reading Betsy and Rachel in what felt very Lucy and Ricky in their separate beds, which, um, you know, Fred and Wilma were the first couple to share a bed on TV, right? And I was afraid this would feel Fred and Wilma. But this had all the love of every fun lesbian couple I know. I thought that was Tignataro with her hair on fire. <laughs> I thought that was Portia de Rossi, you know, pulling up in the monster. <laughs> I was so impressed. And I just, a million points to Teeny Howard for celebrating queer love in a way that was so universal, but felt so authentic to a queer person. Thanks. I want to throw out there, too, that I think um, Rachel's being coded increasingly throughout this run as uh, non-binary. Uh, 
um, artistically, <laughs> for sh- <laughs> artistically for sure. Um, I feel like there's a very good chance that she is a character who could say on panel that she is non-binary. Um, but I think we are seeing a lot of artistic codes that say that, uh, you know, gender means something different to her than it does to other people in her life. And that makes sense from her background as well. Um, but I, I really did see it here. Also, just Summer's Family Reunion. What a banging shirt. Um, I will be purchasing five. So, guys, how did you feel about the the sort of complicated nature of showing queer love in a way that is vital and essential to queer folk, but still, because I'm not trying to ever say we should, I, I want to be so gay that I don't care that a straight person doesn't understand what I'm saying, but I don't ever want straight people to feel like gay isn't for them. Cause it's, it's not always for them, but I don't want gay people walk, like gay people and straight people being like, we can't share the same comics. That's ridiculous. How did you guys feel about the nature of this perfect moment for me that really bridged these two worlds? I, uh, I I live in a different world where I think that if you can't find a queer a queer love experience universal, then you can just you know kick rocks for all I care. Um, but I truly enjoyed the two of them, particularly coming from. Uh, a world where I read the first, what, 30 issues of Excalibur from back in the day and Rachel has come a very long way to the point where I don't even know her code name anymore. And, yeah, I don't know who, I don't know her. And um, <laughs> so for me, like, it was just exciting and I don't really know Betsy at all and so it was just really fun. I particularly actually really enjoyed the way that they're mimicking the tabloid treatment of Meghan Markle in a lot of their that that pulling coverage they have going on in that issue, so uh, it just made me be like, oh, as a thinking human, I have to like these two. So that helped. I really loved uh, what Teeny Howard did with this issue and especially with Rachel because this is what I've been really wanting to see with Rachel for a long, long time. And uh, especially I think my favorite moment of the issue was when they were both like teleporting or together and it was just so like gentle and like adorable. And uh, it's just like moments like that, which I really adore. I think really good romance, regardless of gender, regardless of anybody, if you ship away everything, you're just left with partner A, partner B, and you are able to imprint on either one and see yourself in their relationship, see the positive qualities, potentially even see the negative qualities, relate to what they're going through. That is a good romance. When you take, when you ship away everything and you're just left with the meat of the contents, you know, take away the bread from the sandwich and you're left with the inside, you're left with that, you know, the meat. It's really, the, the <laughs> cold cuts. Um, I think that's a sparkmanship, a really good writing. And I think both books really excelled at that where regardless of whatever you identify as, you can see yourself as any of these partners and what they're dealing with, what they're going through. Even if it's not exactly one-to-one to your situation, you can still empathize and understand what 
each what the characters' motivations are, how they're feeling, and why they feel so natural in these relationships. And now I want to take the question, and I know we're we're running to the end of the show, but I want to ask another question because for me. I love Betsy, and I love Betsy independent of how much I love Brian. I love these two characters uniquely. I love Rachel, unique of Betsy. I love Rogue. <laughs> so I really want to say that I think one of the things that these books offer us is an opportunity to look. I mean, and Nathan is out there thinking to himself, "Yeah, of course. He's this is like a thing I'm famous for. I give Gambit an unreasonably hard time uh, because he is a really he is a character that if he was any color other than alabaster white, he would be treated very differently. And I don't care for characters that get like white passing privilege uh, when they're like." creepy Lotharios, and we just think he's cute by 80s standards, you know what I mean? Uh, piping on your... But his wife refers to him by his race, so, like, you know, give him 50-50 on that. <laughs> give him the benefit of the doubt. So, Well, and I, I think, you know, Stephanie Phillips is a good person to be doing this because <laughs> right, she, yeah. she's willing to do a little bit of that work that no male writer... Nico, everything you're saying is true, but it's not usually Stephanie Phillips that's writing Gambit. This is the problem. And I, you know, Timmy Howard did so much work on Gambit and Rogue. And the thing that I'm walking away from these two books with is the core of these books are family. And when Sins of Sinister, the core of Sins of Sinister right now, while it's character and it's building and it's thought and it's expressive, the core of Sins of Sinister is running a Gambit. It's, it's the machinations that are inherent to the characters, whereas the focus here is the humanity of Rogue and Gambit and Captain Britain, whose name, they're titular, they're eponymous, you know what I mean? And the idea that they're family, you know what I mean? I feel like a very family. It's the ever-famous <laughs> Dom Toretto board. Um, you know, I, I feel very much like I could drive a car into space. Um, I, I, I love these movies. Hey, Joey. So the end of the day, my big parting question for everybody, my big last question. Family is at the heart of every good X-Men story. Family is at the heart of every one of these characters. Mystique, Destiny, Rogue, Gambit, Captain Britain, Brian Braddock, Rachel. How does the notion of family fit to you today to the x-men so many of us came to the x-men through the animated series which taught us that the x-men are a family and we see the actual bonds of established relationship deeper deepen now as found family has become such an element of the story how does that play out for you as readers in an age where we have entered a world of found family supersedes biological family uh, for me, a hundred percent family is probably the biggest part of like X-Men. And I think the reason why I was a bit more partial to uh, Rogue and Gambit is because I've been waiting so many years to see more like interactions and moments between Destiny and Rogue. I would say probably since uh, Necrotia? I think Necrotia when Destiny and Rogue had like a long-awaited moment and but then it was quickly taken away from us 
so it's like uh you know family moments in x-men is interesting because it's like you you see it but then certain interactions could not happen for like 10 years yeah like it leaves you wanting more like for example like bishop and shard that's something uh forever ago and um <laughs> so yeah uh family overall is pro i think the dynamic that they're kind of going with especially in rogue and gambit uh has me really invested in that series i mean captain britain you know that that's fun too but uh like i love seeing like megan make her little appearance but uh because <laughs> uh she's a character that i'm always gonna love and uh but yeah <laughs> I would die for her. I, Megan Solo went. Right? <laughs> Megan D. Mutant. So, um. God damn it. I feel like she's been a horse before. She has, right? She's a savage. <laughs> Not Firestar's horse, though. No. no. No, but enough about glue. Um, Jonah, how do you feel about the X-Men and family? Um, so, you know, way back in their first iteration of what they represented, the X-Men being the insert narrative for a marginalized group. And I know that a common story for a lot of marginalized people is their biological family isn't supportive of them, and they have a chosen found family, and that's their family. Those are the people that they consider their family, and that is all i i love that that's also being represented here because destiny isn't rogue's biological mom but it, for all intents and purposes mystique and destiny are her moms and she calls them mom and that she treats mm -hmm. them like their mom and you know you look at someone who is not in this title but is uh <laughs> siblings with rogue mm -hmm. of nightcrawler having multiple parents of mystique margali um, you know, the X-Men are no strangers to having different family dynamics and what that represents and what that means. And see, I, I, I have to agree. Uh, this is something I was kind of hoping for and looking forward to. You know, we got a little bit of taste of it in that one, uh, I believe it was an X-Men issue where Rogue had to go to the bar. And um, uh, yeah. I think Destiny like, happened to be there. Destiny, like, yeah, yeah. It was one of those moments of like, well, no, I want more of this. Give me, give me the familyness. Give me the family drama. Give, give me more of how they're interacting. You know, one of the things I asked Nico about, because um, you think about these family dynamics and everything, I was like, did does Nightcrawler and Nightcrawler and Rogue talk about how they're basically siblings? You know, that it's one of those things where it's like, is that something like that forms their relationship and their bond? And seeing that the family dynamic is explored here of you know Destiny being the unapproving mother-in-law um to to gambit is really their interplay is quite hysterical and something i'm looking forward to for the rest of this book tori talk to me family i am one of the people who's like i just wish the x-men didn't have to fight anyone and we could just watch them have family problems for the rest of forever because that's all i ever want from any of my large groups of characters um I, uh, I'm very excited to get this kind of in-depth. I'm very, uh, like I said, I was very confused because I, you know, I haven't looked at these characters in 20 years worth of issues, so they've come a long way, but, um, 
I'm interested to see how Rogue and Gambit interact with Destiny moving forward, if Mystique's going to get involved, um, if there's something more to this, if there's a comeuppance where Gambit gets to say, I told you so, Destiny is leading us down the wrong track, or if he comes around and he's like, wow, Rogue, you were right about your stepmom, or whatever. I'm interested in that. I'm interested in, you know, what... Uh, whether or not Brian will continue to support his sister in the face of all of this anti-Britain conversations, how far do those family ties go? Um, so, and then to have Rachel, who, I mean, she might be better about this now, but from what I remember of her, she's not big on her family, period. Um, for her to just be like, yeah, do you need family? We could go over here. You don't need them. Um, so I'm I'm always interested, and it's always my first thought of like, oh, why am I getting more of these small moments and these intimate moments? Why do we have to go fight things? Can't we just get stuck in a room and have to figure it out by talking to each other? So, you know, because I love the lettering work of Ariana Mar, who worked on both of these. So <laughs> let's give her a chance. <laughs> and you know i just want to add to what you're saying uh i i very much agree that there is definitely a lot of opportunity for the x-men to keep growing into a place where these sorts of stories do always fit and always make sense um you know my big parting thought my my big goodbye as we as we walk out of this segment uh and i want everybody to to you know give their socials and say uh, a warm goodbye is we're at a place where the X-Men have decided they are more concerned with the long-term storytelling than they are with individual issues and arcs. And the way that's paying off is greatly beneficial for characters like Rachel and Betsy who need the opportunity to grow and no single issue can smartly grow them. But it is also meaning characters like Rogue and Gambit, who are used to that sort of limelight, that spotlight, are now getting it in such a fractured form that it doesn't befit their former expectation of narrative. And I guess my only other thing is I love any book where Pete Wisdom is a bastard. And... <laughs> I love Pete Wisdom so much, especially when he's a bastard and um, bastard like my Bar Sinister bastard right over here. So uh, I'm Nico Action. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, uh, Hive, everywhere at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. You got to do the hands and the head. Everybody knows it. So uh, <laughs> that's me. Uh, and it has been my honor and pleasure working with all of you amazing voices, including the people we have already lost today remember the the departed evelyn jake arturo raven raven i was like i'm going backward through the list and i'm like i skipped it got to jake raven so as always uh sign offs let's start with uh jonah if you want to follow me you can follow me over on twitter and instagram at teak jonah robin where can everybody find your handsome face and you can find me at age of polaris on twitter and, and uh, yeah, Tori, other than next to me. <laughs> you can find me on the interwebs on Twitter at Tori underscore Sheehan and on Instagram at SMTori. 
TK, where can we find you? You can find me at xnatexgrayx on basically any social network you can dream of. And speaking of bastards, uh, there is one badass bastard who has not shown his gorgeous face yet. Oh, you no gotta see his gorgeous face. But as always, we couldn't make this shenaniganery without uh, the incredible, brilliant producer, Kevo. You are so weird. <laughs> He's real weird. I am technically a bastard. So... Wait, what? We'll talk it's about this later. It's one of those we'll theological about... things. We'll talk, we'll talk about yeah, this later. No. We'll talk about this later. Oh, I not a bar yeah. sinister. Not, not well, to spill anybody's too much tea, but I'm, I'm one of those. I, I want to point out that uh, we have a, an incredibly Master's handsome spot. fan who just missed out on a, a cool, cool video. But if he missed out on it, he, like all of our amazing fans, should like and subscribe and check out our amazing back catalog of videos. Uh, we got plenty of on demand for these. And to all of our new fans over on Twitch, thank you so much for joining us. Please like, subscribe, um, Twitch, you know. Um, so, are we on uh, Twitch? We are. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, no, oh. I sh we're growing, baby. So, okay. Kevin, where can everybody it. find you, uh, Mr. Stark? You can find me on the socials at Kevo Really. That's K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y. And you can find my fingerprints all over this network. Uh, X is for show. We have so much awesome new content uh, continually, and we have so many cool things coming. Uh, it's all very exciting. And Kevo, can you just flash my little man? Is my little man available? What little man? Like, what does uh, that mean? No, he's talking. Uh, I owe TK and the little man too, so. <laughs> oh, your little guy? I don't know. I'm not prepared. Hold on. No, well, he's on the outro screen, I think. <laughs> so yeah, are you no. saying, like, let's just end the show and then I everybody guess. can see I him? Guess. Anyway, uh, so. Is uh, that what you were trying to say? Or... <laughs> no. Hold but... on. But it's what we're going to do. <laughs> I guess. I just wanted to say how cute these amazing little images are of our team. Oh, oh yeah. Yes. No, absolutely. And, and uh, then how much I love that we have these and that, uh, you know, even before she was a regular part of the show, Tori has been making uh, the art for the mm -hmm. show and as well as for the Billy Club since day one and uh, just always brings excellence like her work over on our comic book Kid Riot which uh, we've been making forever. You can check that out. Yeah. So. Ever. Wonderful <laughs> endeavor. We love things. Y'all are the best. And then we met Kid Riot, and uh, <laughs> funny enough. You do look like Kid Riot. Oh, yeah, no. Yeah, these That's these are crazy. great. You should hold on to those. <laughs> we need more cosplayers. <laughs> okay. Hold on, we more cosplayers. I'm, I'm signing us off because now we're just talking. We can yeah. ask you later. Bye, right. kids. Night, everybody. Thanks for playing, everyone. Stay safe from your T-Rex, though. Yes, for real. Whatever that means. <laughs>